Now we're going to dive in. Are you ready to buckle up? Okay, because we're going to fly. It's Genesis. You're like, please fly through this. I don't want to hear about money anymore. Genesis 22. I'm not going to put all of these up on the screen, but if you have a device or a Bible, open that up. This is a very, uh, I've kind of been gravitating towards this because of a few conversations that have happened recently. Uh, They weren't pointedly about this text, but as it came up, my wife and I were both there and we were like, man, I hate that story. That story is really disturbing. And this is the story, of course, about Abraham and Isaac. So I'm going to recap this for you. If you don't know, you can follow along in the text, but I'm not going to exactly read it. I'm just going to give you the overview. So uh, Sarah and Abraham have not had a kid and God has promised them a kid. So then uh, actually it happens. They have a son named Isaac, okay? Fast forward through Isaac's life. He's probably 12 or 13 years old, something like that. And God comes to Abraham and says, I want to take your son. I want you to take your son up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. So did you catch that? I'm going to promise you a son who's going to make heirs for you. He's going to be your heir. And I've also said that you're going to have descendants like as many as the stars in the heaven, as many descendants as there are grains of sand on the seashore. And I've promised this son to you. I'm going to make good on this promise. He does make good on the promise. And then he says, I want you to kill him for me, like as a sacrifice to me. What? (laughs) Right? Do you have a problem with that? Yeah, good. You should have a problem with that. Um, here's the thing. That's not the shocking thing in the story for the first readers, the first hearers of this. And it's not the shocking thing that's most shocking to Abraham. Like, you don't see Abraham going, excuse me? Like, if you read the text, he's not like, what, God? He's like, okay. And we're like, what? What is going on here? Okay. You want me? He's not like, how do you want me to sacrifice him? It's like he just knows how to do it. And he just goes on, he just starts to go on with it. And I'm, and we're going, what the heck, God? I want to, I want some explanation here. You know, why do you want me to do this for you? And here's what I need you to understand, what I want you to understand is that Abraham lived in a time and in a place where every, when all of the gods that people worshiped at that time, they all demanded child sacrifice. Okay? Yeah. And so he's familiar. He's familiar. There was this common thinking that if I'm going to get what I need or if I need to get what I want something, then it's going, to, it's going to take something really big, okay? All of them did it. So Abraham, of course, is not even surprised when his God says, you need to do this. This is what gods do back then of all the different tribes and peoples there. So Isaac, the text tells us that he, who carries the wood? The text tells us that Isaac carries the wood. So he's not a little kid anymore. In the previous verses, he's just born, and then it switches to he's carrying the wood, which means he's, scholars think he's probably early teenage years, okay? And it's interesting because, have you considered this, if you're really familiar with this story, it says that Isaac gets up on the altar. It's like he's on the altar himself. It's like, I don't know any of you, like if, if, if you think about this and you don't want to think about it, but like if you were going to wrestle your 12 or 13, 14-year-old son and try and put him on an altar, are they going to just lay there and take it? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. And here's the deal. Abraham's 100 years old or more at this point. I don't even know 40-year-olds that can keep up with their teenagers anymore, really, for the most part, right? So Isaac, if he didn't want to get on the altar... I don't really think there's a way that Abraham could have stopped him. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think Abraham could have stopped Isaac from being like, whatever, Dad, I'm running away, and you can't catch me, you know? So 
as the story goes on, Abraham raises the knife, right? He's about to kill his son, and the angel of the Lord intervenes, right? And there's this ram in the bush, and the ram becomes the sacrifice. Now, there's the weird thing. All of that stuff, all, all that stuff leading up to it is not what blows Abraham's mind. It's not what blows his mind. It's what blows our mind, but it's not what blows his mind, okay? It's not what God asked him to do, and it's not what God, that God waited till the last minute either, okay? The part that seems to amaze him is that God is a God who provides. And in the text, we lose this, but at this point in the text, because of this happening, God provides this ram in place of his son being the sacrifice, and it's such a big deal, obviously because his son is saved, but it's such a big deal that God also provides this other sacrifice to take his place. And so much so that he gives God a new name. He says, your name now is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yireh, the God who provides, right? And that is a huge deal because there is no other God in antiquity who is called the God who, who provides. And he gives him this other sacrifice. And that's the question that we're wrestling with today. And that's the question we're going to wrestle with, with the rest, for the rest of our lives. Do I believe that you serve a God that provides? Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will provide for you? And does your life show what you believe? And we're going to hit that a couple more times this morning. But here's the challenge this morning. I, I've said this a million other ways to you guys, and, and I think we're all getting it, but it's a hard thing that we have to keep on getting over and over and over again. Your faith is not lived out in your head. In other words, God is like, I don't care that you say you believe in me. There's also a scripture that says Satan believes in me and he knows all the scriptures, you know, and he trembles, right? He's like, I don't care if you believe in me. I want you to live out your faith in tangible, concrete, actionable ways that prove that you have trust in me, all right? That's the question. Do you believe this morning that you serve a God who provides for everything? Does your life show it? Because unless your life shows it, you can speak all these words that come out of your mouth and you can tell people what you believe, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything unless you are actually living it. You're showing it. So we're like, sure, sure, I believe a God who provides. I believe it. It's in the Bible. Yeah, I believe it. Really? The question is, do we, do we trust that? Do we trust that? Does your life demonstrate it in the way that you deal with everyday situations and situations that come up throughout your life. And I'm sure you're thinking of all kinds of examples in your own life, some of them financial, some of them otherwise. Do I really believe this? And so what I want to do is um, go through a series of scriptures that kind of, they're all hooked, they're all coupled together by this grand narrative that God is telling. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, which is the obvious place to start, right? Because that's in the beginning, right? This is a big deal. We don't think it's a big deal, but there's, it, you're, hopefully this is going to be It'll, it'll blossom for you and you'll understand. Genesis uh, chapter 1. This is the famous poem that starts off our scriptures, right? In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, and the earth was wild and waste, formless and void. It's a really cool... I like the formless and void in Hebrew is tovu vavohu. <laughs> tovu vavohu. And that's very poetic, right, in Hebrew. 
the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep. And for the Hebrews and any culture back that, in that time, the deep waters, that's chaos. That's just, you can't control that. There's no force on earth. Like, it's all unpredictable, right? A storm could wash up and wash everything away. You could be out on a boat, and there is nothing you can do, even now. Like, our boats are big, but they're not too big. They can still be sunk, you know? God speaks in this text, and then he brings order to chaos, to the waves and the wind. He brings order to the formless and the void. And then at six day, he creates for six days, and on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. We all know it. He rests. He rests. God rested. Now, why did God rest? Did God rest because he's tired? Was he tired? Yeah. The answer is no. The Bible says that God neither, neither sleeps nor does he slumber. God's not tired. So why did he rest? For whom did he rest? I think he rested for us because we get tired. We get overworked. And so God says, I'm going to mark this day as a Sabbath day and you're going to keep it holy. And by keeping it holy, you're not going to work and you're going to rest. And on this day, you're going to do things that feed your soul. You're like, wait, what? So like Sabbath, like, Translation, we're Christians, the Sabbath for Jews is on Saturday. For us, it's kind of on Sunday. I get this thing on a weekend, and it's all mixed up because I'm American, and we have the weekend. We live for the weekend, and there's actually some really good truth to that. Like, Sabbath is supposed to be for rest and for what brings you life. What brings you, feeds your soul. You're supposed to enjoy this day, right? You're supposed to enjoy it. Whatever it is, do whatever it is that helps you enjoy the day. So here's a really easy definition for the Sabbath that I want you to write down. We don't work. We rest. This is for the concept of Sabbath. For all of you who are like freaking out now and go, well, we're New Testament Christians. There's Old Testament things, not for us. Baloney. Jesus, we're following Jesus who observed the Sabbath. I don't need to say any more, right? <laughs> okay. So we don't work. We rest. We play. God loves you. That's the point of the day. God loves you. He's giving you this day of rest, right? So, what you need to realize is that every other nation back then is not resting. There's no Sabbath for them. They're not working. You're like, oh, that sounds like corporate America. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, stores are open on Thanksgiving. They're open on Christmas. What? Where's the rest? Where's the rest? You know? So, it's really, we want, God has set up a day where he doesn't want you to work. And trust me, you're like, what does this have to do with money and giving and generosity. We're going to get there if you hang with me. Everyone else who's around you, the people who are serving these other gods back then, the gods who take from them, by the way, uh, they are clamoring and clamoring because they don't have enough in their life. Seven days a week. And one way, way, day a week back then, this Hebrew people says, no, we're not going to work. We're going to rest. We're just going to take a day off. And it's holy to the Lord. And we're going to rest. And we're going to play. And we're going to enjoy ourselves. Why? Because we serve a God who what? Yahweh, Yireh. He provides. He provides. And we're going to trust that. So we actually have to take the day of rest. And I'm going to trust that so, that so that I can see him show up and provide because he does the work for us. Now, fast forward, Leviticus 25. I know when it comes to being generous, I know all of you, when we think about being generous, we all immediately think of Leviticus, right? <laughs> yeah. We should. I mean, we've been sitting here for a few weeks in Leviticus, but 
Here's what happens in Leviticus 25. The Lord speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he says, he says all these things about there's the Sabbath day, but then he starts talking about like every six years on the seventh year, I want you to take a whole year off. You know, it worked for six years, but in the seventh year, uh, there's a Sabbath for the land. So you have seven days a week and you take one day and rest. And then you have seven, then you have years. And then every seventh year you rest. So it's for the land. So this is a farming agricultural society and culture. And it's not like our farming where they have big machines and they're just raking in all this stuff, right? And they're setting aside. They do that, but it's subsistence farming. It's like if I don't, if I don't put the seed in the ground, if I don't buy the seed and put it in the ground and water it and then let, let it grow and then harvest it, then I don't eat. And I have nothing to sell. So I can't, I, to buy the, the other things that I need besides just grain because you really, you can't. Jesus was right. You really can't just live on bread alone. Your body's going to start to break down, you know, because you need other stuff. And these are subsistence farmers. So if they don't farm, they don't eat. And God says, every seven years, don't farm, which means what? That could mean that I don't eat, right? Why would God say for them to do this? So if you read on in Leviticus 25, it says, this seventh year will be a a, a year of solemn rest. And you're, this is why, like, okay, this is why we still have, for certain uh, jobs these days, you have people who get sabbaticals. A sabbatical based on Sabbath, right? And it comes from this, right? It comes from these, these texts. This is what God is saying to Moses. Listen, look, if you have a vineyard and you work it, if you work it, it's going to do what? It's going to produce fruit, right? But if you don't work the vineyard, is it still going to produce fruit? Yeah, you actually it will. If you leave the vine there, it's still going to produce fruit. Like I do nothing to the apple tree and the pear tree in my yard, and each year it just keeps producing fruit. Now, if you work it and dress the vine and take care of it, obviously it's going to produce bigger, larger fruit and that kind of thing. But God's saying like there's something healthy if you actually let that plant rest and you don't work it, okay? And but he goes a little bit further in Leviticus 25 and he says, listen, even if you don't work it and it produces this fruit, don't eat it. Don't pick it. And it, they're like, what? In that seventh year, don't eat it and don't, don't pick it, all right? And on the surface to us and probably to all those other tribes, the Philistines and all those eens that are in there, right? <laughs> they're like, they're like, what are these guys doing, right? The, it seems wasteful. The American God is a God of pragmatism. We want a functional God. This doesn't make sense. There's got to be a reason for what he's doing here, right? So everything should be used up. We shouldn't waste everything. So Leviticus 25, verse 8, if you're following along, I'm not going to put it on the screen because we're flying through this. It says, count off seven Sabbath years. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the 7th month. On the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet through your land. Consecrate, and there's a big deal about the Day of Atonement. We'll get into that another time. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return your family property into your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. What are the implications of this? Why is this important? This year of Jubilee, so this translation for you. 
no matter what bad financial decisions you have made, no matter what bad financial decisions you've made in your life, every 50 years, you get it all back. Heck yeah, baby. That's awesome. Seriously. Like I've, and I know some of you are going, man, I wish we were still doing this. I want to be an Old Testament Christian, you know, and get everything back. Yeah. Basically, it's like, God, do you understand? Do you understand how good God is to you? Every 50 years, he's like, reset, reset. And he, um, seriously, he could just make you pay for your stupidity. <laughs> he could, but he doesn't. And God goes on in this, in this rest of this chapter to prescribe exactly what they're to do in that year and how they're to compensate each other. And he makes sure to tell them, though, look, listen, even though I'm telling you, like, if you lose your land and blah, 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 and you get it back and you have to give it back to the person that you've made a slave or whatever, and there's all these rules for this, like people going into indentured servitude because of their own stupid mistakes and blah, blah, blah. He's like, you get it all back. He's basically saying, though, that the land is not yours. It's mine. I gave it to you in the first place. And I want you to honor me by honoring this land that I gave you. And I want you to give it a break in this year of Jubilee and every seven years, okay? And he's like, listen, I'm going to take care of you if you trust me. He says, look, if you trust me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you so much blessing. Just go, go read Leviticus 25 and all of 26, and you'll see what he says. I'm going to give you so much blessing in the sixth year that in the next two years, you're going to be like totally flush. You're going to be set. Okay? You're going to have enough to eat on the next year and enough to then start sowing again in the eighth year when you start over again. Why? He's basically like, I triple dog dare you. And I know a bunch of you are going to go watch the Christmas story next week when Thanksgiving break sets in. and He's going to stick his tongue to the pole. That's not what God's doing, though. He's not the bully telling you to stick your tongue to the pole, and it freezes. He's just saying, listen, listen, if you trust me, I'm going to take care of you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you more than enough. It's a triple dog dare for you to trust him. But you have to trust him in the sixth year to get the blessing and receive it in the seventh and eighth year. You have to put your faith in him, a concrete, actionable thing that you're, I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to take a Sabbath, and it has to do with your generosity and the way you live. It brings us back to that question. Do you believe... Do you believe that you serve a God who provides? And does your life show it? Remember, the whole conversation here from a couple weeks back, this is not, you don't give so that you make God happy and that he's proud of you and like, if I don't give, he's not going to be happy with me. All right? It's not about making God happy. It's not about appeasing the gods out there because that would just be a God who takes, right? And this is a God who provides. Okay? So why does God do this whole Sabbath rest day and then every seventh year thing and then every 50 years in the Jubilee? I want you, let's spell it out just real briefly here. If you're going to live this thing where every seven years you do this, uh, it's the sixth year. Imagine it's the sixth year. It's time to buy your seed from your supplier, okay? Time for you to buy seed. And they're expecting you to come, right? Because you've done this the last five years. And you're like, no, I don't need the seed. You don't, in fact, you don't show up. And they're like, what? And this, so a Philistine market over here is like, I got the seed for sale. It's on sale. It's a blue light special. You know, buy it over here. And you don't show up. In fact, 
your family doesn't show up and a bunch of other families and they're like, what? So uh, what the heck is going on with the Hebrews? They didn't show up this year. Okay, do they have a new supplier? Are they getting it from Egypt? Where are they getting it from? Is it a better price? Who's undercutting me? You know, type of thing. They got to be thinking that kind of stuff. So then in the springtime, in the seventh year, all the Philistines are watching like, are the, you know, the Hebrews are going to plant something. We still haven't figured out where they got the seed from, that kind of stuff. It's time to plant. They're not out in the fields. Where the heck are they? First off, they didn't buy any seeds. Second of all, they're not planting anything. It is time to plant. All the nations around them, you've got to understand that from certain vantage points in Israel, if you look around and you read the stories in your Old Testament, all the five Philistine city-states, you can see them. Like, they're neighbors. Like they're, like, they're looking over each other's back fence, and they can see what's going down, okay? They're all, all these tribes are in close proximity. And the Philistines, they're looking at the Israelites, and they're like, hey, they're not planting. Bunch of idiots. I mean, what are they doing over there? And then July rolls around, spring's already swung through, Dry, July comes around, and they're like, man, it's too late for them, because they're, like, they're, nothing's growing. There's no crop sprouting up, there's nothing there. If they want anything from us, we're going to gouge these guys. Like, if they need food, we're just going to jack these prices up. And if they can't pay it, indentured servitude, they're going to be my slaves for a season, you know, until they pay it off. It's gonna, we're going to come out on top. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's good business. That's, that's pragmatism, right? That's good business, right? That's a free market economy, you know? And then harvest comes by, so they haven't planted. They didn't buy seed. They haven't planted. Nothing's growing. Harvest time comes, and they got nothing. They got nothing. And they still haven't come to the Philistines for help. And the Philistines are like, what's up? You know, like, and the curiosity starts to get the better of them. And finally, they're like, what are you doing? Are you, gonna, or like, are you guys okay? They're finally like, they stop thinking about gouging them, and they're kind of like, what is going on with you? What's the deal? Are you like all on a suicide mission or something? Why aren't they here asking for grain? And the Israelites, oh, they finally ask, and the Israelites, oh, didn't know you cared. You don't come see my storage bin? You take them over to the storage bin, and the Philistines are like, what in the world? How did you get all this stuff? Where did all of this come from? How did you do that? And of course, the good Hebrews are like, I, we didn't do it. We have Yahweh Jireh. We have a God who provides. And we trust Him, right? What we do when we live in a way where we trust the provision of God is we, we put our God on display to the world. Right? Just like they did. Or did they? Do you know your Old Testament? <laughs> did they do that? By the way, I believe, like, if we live this way, if we live in a way where we trust the provision of God and we put him on display, I believe with all of my heart that if people could see God for who he really is, they would believe in him. They would have faith in him, just like you and me. And the question is really, why wouldn't they? Because he's amazing. He's incredible. He's an incredibly generous God who provides and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives to us all the time. And the question is, is that the story that you and I are telling? Is that the story? And, and I'm asking you the question because I know for me and for you and for a lot of the Christians, it's not. It's not the story we're telling. And it's like, come on, let's get the story right. 
Let's tell a story about this God who gives. It's Christmas season. It's Advent is upon us next week. The God who gives has given us His Son. His one and only Son. You know? So when people look at your life, do they go, holy cow, she serves a God who provides because she is generous and giving and she goes to church in the Pacific Northwest. You know? Or do they go, holy cow, she is her, she says she's a Christian, but she is stingy and she is mean and she is rigid and she is stifling and she doesn't give one iota about any other people. And she's a Christian in the Pacific Northwest. And they all do, they go, yup. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to like come down on us hard, but every once in a while it's like, come on. Who is the God that you serve? Do people look at you and your life and see a God who provides? It's not about what's in your head. If they, you might be like doing good acts, but they don't even know you're a Christian. Like, they don't even know you go to church because you haven't invited them. Yeah, that was a dig. Just threw that in there. You all look awkward. <laughs> Stop it. This is family. Like, seriously. There's that part. No, Siri. Go back to sleep. It's seriously. And it's like, okay. Um, she's going to preach now. <laughs> I think I could. It might go faster if I just put open accessibility options and hit speak. Okay. Anyway. By the way, so you think I'm getting all serious about that. Because God is serious about it. He's super serious about this. If you read, just read Leviticus 26 and see how serious he is about it. Instead of doing that, though, I want to I finish this up quickly today. There's a prophet in the Old Testament uh, called Jeremiah. If you go to Jeremiah 25, I want to illustrate, I want to tie, tie these verses, these scripture passages that we've read together. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham, Leviticus 25 and 26, and I want to jump to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, the background is that he's a prophet, at the time where the Israelites are conquered by the nation of Babylon, Babylonians, and they are sent away into exile into what is modern-day Iraq. Their temple, everything is destroyed, and they get carted off, and there's a reason for all this. So I just want to read part of this to you from Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Got all those names, right? So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, uh, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said... Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you didn't listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words. I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, 
and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years. Where have we heard 70 years before? Yeah. We've heard this 7 times 70 and all that kind of stuff. So God has, in this passage, God has, he has le- he's pointing the finger at them. He's leveled an accusation at them. I've warned you over and over again not to chase after these other gods. The question I have when I read this is, what's the evidence that they've chased after these other gods? Does he say exactly what they've done, other than generally saying you've chased after other gods? And he says he has this 70 years at the end there. You're going you're to pay for this for 70 years. Why 70 years? You know, if you study the whole, the whole uh, exile into Babylon, you study that whole thing, what you realize is that it's 70 years, one year, one year for every jubilee year that they did not honor. So he told them to live this certain way. Abraham, their father of their faith, sets it up like God provides, Yahweh Jireh. He gives them these these statutes for this is how you're going to live this out and show the whole earth what kind of God I am in terms of providing for you. I'm a different kind of God. I'm going to provide so much for you that you can be able to rest, not just one day a week, but for every every six years, you get a whole year off. I'm going to provide so much for you if you do what I say. And you fast forward to Jeremiah and some of the other prophets as well. They have this story of you're off in Babylon now and you're there and you're going to have this 70 years of exile. One year for every jubilee year the nation of Israel had not honored. It's all connected. So when I say he takes it seriously, he's not playing. He's not playing around. When you study the Babylonian captivity, you learn that his people, the ones that he specifically picked to put him on display, they refused to trust him. They said, I don't believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I don't believe that you're going to provide. Even though Abraham said so, I'm going to say it with my lips, but I'm not going to say it with my actions. I'm not going to take the Sabbath off. I'm not going to celebrate a year of Jubilee. I'm not going to release the property that I'm supposed to release and give back to whoever made a bad decision, I'm going to take more and more and more because that's what I trust. And so what they told the rest of the world was that they served a God who didn't provide, right? That's what they told them by their actions. Even though they all believed in their head the story of Abraham, they all knew it, but they didn't didn't live like it. They didn't take God at his word. And this matters for us, and I I think you know why. I don't really need to explain it, but I'm going to. It matters, it matters because we have the freedom as followers of Jesus to be generous. We have more than enough freedom as followers of Jesus in America, in a first world country, to be generous. Okay? We have that freedom. When we have a God who gives, we give. Why? 
because that's who he is. That's what he's like. That's how our God is. That's how he functions. And when we choose not to be generous, we're telling the world there's another story about who God is. And God does not like us telling that story. He says, it's not true about me. I don't like that story. What we're doing is we're giving people an improper picture of who our God is when we don't live with generosity. All right. Before you check out, it's that moment where you like, you're going to check out. You start doing mental gymnastics with this because I've heard, you know, I've been doing ministry for a while now, um, doing ministry. Um, and I've preached on this topic more than a few times. And some of you are going, it's not just about money, it's about my time and all that kind of stuff. To which I say, true. What's your point? Seriously, like, what's your point? What we do is we try to leverage that as an excuse so that we don't have to give money. And here's what I would say. Yeah, it's, it's not just about money. No, it's about all of it. It's about all of it. It's about your whole life. It's about every choice. It's about every decision. It's about every fiber of your being. Right? All of it reflecting a God who provides. So yeah, it's about your time. It's also about your checkbook because you do give money to the God that you serve. Whatever that God is for you, you're going to give money to it. So all of it is reflecting God who provides. All I'm saying is that when God says to go tell the world that you serve a God who provides, the God who is a giver is, he's not playing around. He's not playing around. And we're partnered with him. And in our partnership, when we do this, we begin to understand his provision for us and his power and his love for us. When you actually live with generosity, it's for you. It's for you. Because we've said this before, he doesn't need your money, but he wants you to give a tangible, actionable show of your allegiance to him. It's for us and it's for the world because we're putting him on display when we do it. The Sabbath rest is about trusting God who provides. And it freaks us out because we're like, if I rest... Which is why there's all these blogs about don't do work at night and all these people who work 70, 80 hours a week because they go to work and they go home and they're still doing work. And some of you are nodding your heads, right? You're going, yeah, I have to log in remotely and do all this stuff, you know? Um, meanwhile, God's over, saying, over here saying, hey, I provide. And you're like, well, if I don't do this, number one, my boss is going to get mad at me. Number two, uh, my retirement, my kids' college, the tickets to the games I want to go to, the vacations I want to take. And God's saying, I provide. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Seriously, come on. We have a God who provides. You serve a God who gives. Amen. Do you believe it? Yeah. Yeah. If we could truly give the world an accurate picture of who God is with our generosity, I think we'd have to beat people off with a stick. I mean, literally. Be like, who, who are you and why are you living that way? Why are you doing this? You know? Like, I get these crazy ideas. Like, I, I, I heard about this week they're going to shut down the power on part of California on a certain night, right? And there's businesses there that are, like, they have to shut down. So, like, the owner of the business... They've got like a restaurant 
then they have to keep all the food cold. And if it isn't kept cold, right, then they can't serve it because of the Department of Health, right? So then they lose all their inventory and they just lose money and they can't pay their employees. One day can make all the difference in the world to a business like that, right? So, and I'm privy to some of those conversations that come, come and go between our community and the powers that be because I'm on the board for our little village. And it's like, we're like, hey, can you provide a generator? And they're like, no, we don't do that. And I'm thinking, we could do that. <laughs> we could provide a generator for that business so that the food doesn't... Can you imagine what they'd be thinking? They'd be thinking, what the... They'd be saying, those Christians, what the... Fill in the blank. <laughs> but we love these guys. They just saved our business. Right? Because we have a God who provides. Well, what if we, what if we get hit with whatever, some downturn in the economy? It's all God's stuff. Right? I'm not going to read it. In Matthew chapter 6, you all know it well. Don't worry. You can't serve God in money, right? That passage. You're not going to add an hour to your life by worrying. I take care of the birds. I take care of the, uh, the flowers. I've clothed them in glorious array. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything, everything will be added to you. That's my quick, down and dirty, dirty summary of that. Today, I mean, seriously, here's another way of illustrating it. Today, there's a little game being played. Right now. I'm watching who's got their phone out. <laughs> there's a little game being played right now. Seahawks and Eagles. Who's going to score much more touchdowns? The Seahawks, right? Yeah, yeah. Listen, I don't want, like Tim and I were talking about this week, there's been several different games played in the past, and I don't want to salt, rub salt in the wound, but I kind of do. A little bit. Um, there's been several games where the crowd, the Seahawks crowd, have cheered so loudly that it has registered on the Richter scale. They even have a name for it. Who, who knows what it is? Beast Quake. Beast Quake. The cheering is so loud that it registers between like a one and a two on the Richter scale. The cheering, the celebration is so potent and powerful that it creates an earthquake. Some of you are like, ooh, that gives me chills up my spine. Here's the deal. That is about people giving passionate allegiance to overgrown men playing with a ball on a field. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? The point, the question is, do you understand what you're celebrating? And how does that match up to the God of the universe? It doesn't. But we create earthquakes with our praise for men who are bigger than me that we don't know for a team that gives you no allegiance back. In fact, they take all your money and your time and you spend a lunch on the parties 
you know. And don't get me wrong, I want you to be good 12th men. Where's the 12th woman stuff, by the way? I mean, okay. I'm just saying, yeah, but they don't, where's the hashtag 12th woman, you know? Uh, Jesus had 12 men, they're called disciples. Let's act like them, you know? Do you understand what you're celebrating? Do you and I understand what it is we have to celebrate? This is why we go through these seasons of Advent, so we can understand what we're celebrating, right? We spend our life and our energies and our passions giving our allegiances to all the wrong things and all the wrong places. And we will say, I believe God provides. I believe it. I have faith in him. Okay, then live like it. Live like it. Does your checkbook show it? Does your whole life show it? Your time, your energy, your focus, what you celebrate, what you don't celebrate, you know? Does it show that you believe that you serve a God that provides? Does it show that? We serve a God. We serve a God who has kicked death in the teeth and put death in its own grave. That's the God we serve. He gives us life, he gives us hope, he gives us an actual future. And all he asks is that we represent him to the world. For some weird reason, he wants us to do this part by the way we live. And I think, just to wrap this up, I think that we can do that. I think we can celebrate that through generosity a little bit more effectively. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we receive ever more from you, every good thing from you as a gift from you to be celebrated with thankfulness and shared in generosity. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.